All right, everybody, welcome back to the Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Polly, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, Travis. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am doing fantastic. We have another voicemail today Yeah. from a listener, and uh, so we're going to play that now. Okay. Get set up for the episode. Hi. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Tracy, and I've been reading this book that talks about um, just like our bodies and what it means in the context of it being broken and us living in a sinful world. It's called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies by Sam Albury, um, how the gospel is good news for our physical selves. And one of the verses that he brought out, which I'm a little bit confused about, is um, Romans 8.20, which says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And I think another translation... uh, Oh, I lost the page. But other translations, I mean, it has different ideas as well, but still the same concept. Uh, And I was just wondering, what is the meaning of Romans 8.20 um, when we think about us living in a sinful world? I guess when we think about in the context of creation um, and the context of our bodies being broken, but also being hopefully, like, restored one day. Um, so, yeah, I've just been really thinking and trying to figure out what Romans 8.20 means. Uh, so would love it if you all are able to do a podcast on this. I know that you've been in the series with explaining certain verses. So would love to get more um, context and information about this. Okay, I hope you have a great day. Okay, thanks to Tracy for that great question. That is a great question. One of my favorite chapters to talk about. I told Travis before we started recording that it's like somebody saying, hey, just talk about whatever you want to talk about, because <laughs> this is what I would I would talk about if I could talk about whatever I wanted. So Absolutely. Romans 8 is, is my favorite chapter. That's right. That's right. And this getting into this about, about the title heading for that section of scripture in my Bible says future glory. Mm, future um, glory. And I think that it was one of the things we were talking about before we got started today was the struggle that we have in knowing what to think about that. What is what yeah. is the future? We we have a good idea of what the past looked like. Yeah, we have a good idea of how frustrating and painful and uh, and and sometimes good and joyous the present can be like. Yeah. Um, but knowing what to think about our future and the resurrection and yeah, I think that's something all of Christendom is still struggling with today. Yeah, it, it's it, there's so many layers to this. My wife and I often talk about eschatology, um, although we don't use that word around our house very often, but, uh, but that's what it is. Eschatology is the study of the end. We've done the, we've done several podcast episodes on eschatology, uh, but it's the study of, of what happens at the end of this age. 
and and how is all of that going to play out? What does Scripture say about that? And there's so many reasons why we have a warped eschatology or a an eschatology that doesn't align with Scripture. Um, and and a lot of that has to do with philosophy more than it does actual Scripture. And so right. we've made lots of assumptions about how the physical world is bad, how we're going to do away with the physical world and, and move on to a spiritual world. And let me just say from the outset, and I've said this many times, and the more I read Scripture, the more I am convinced that that idea is antithetical to the gospel. Right. It is antithetical to the gospel to think that the created world is bad and that God's intention is to destroy all things that are physical. And I say that as someone who used to who used to preach that exact idea. And that idea comes from Plato, not from Jesus. And so when we read passages like Romans 8:20, we have a tendency to misinterpret it because we've already drawn our conclusions. And that is exactly what we want to avoid when we do Bible study. We want to avoid bringing our preconceived ideas to Scripture and saying, well, it can't mean what it seems to mean because I've already concluded that Scripture doesn't teach X, Y, and Z. And so we have to let Scripture speak for itself. And so that's one of the problems that we have when we approach this text. But let's let's kind of back up and and do a little bit of of context. So in Romans, in in the epistle to the, the the Christians in Rome, Paul is really trying to bring about unity, as he always is. He's trying to bring about reconciliation, specifically, probably, between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. He uses the phrase several times to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about how both the Greek and the Jew are are lost and in need of a savior, how we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that it is God's will to reconcile humanity to God, to himself, but also to each other in Christ Jesus, and how we are saved by being in Christ. And that he talks about Romans 6, talks about being baptized into Christ, and how that not only unites us with Jesus, but it breaks us free. It liberates us from the reign of sin and death. And he talks about sin, kind of personifies sin as if sin is like the Pharaoh, and we are experiencing a new exodus coming out from the rule of of Satan and the rule of sin and death. And then he talks about this life in the Spirit. What is it like having this Spirit who is this this foretaste of the glory. The, the, the Spirit is this, this promise, this down payment, this guarantee of what is to come. And so he talks about, as you laid out so well, the, the, the past and the present and the future. Mm-hmm. And in this present moment, the, this evil age, this present darkness continues to make life difficult and and hard and and we suffer and we groan and then he talks about how we will be glorified with Jesus mm-hmm. and that idea of glory you you even said your heading says future glory well th- again that's a word we tend to misunderstand glory is about something that belongs to typically rulers kings uh, royalty because glory is about being exalted. It's about having the status and the power and the the, the radiance of of royalty and how we will we will be glorified with Jesus, Paul says, if we suffer with Jesus. And the Spirit is given to us to help us 
and to 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 be a down payment before that that future glory right. is experienced. So in this present moment, we're suffering, we're hurting, we're longing, we're, we're eagerly waiting and anticipating the glory that will be revealed and that we will experience when Jesus comes. So that's sort of the context. So with that in mind, let's read. I'm assuming you're going to read from the New Living Translation? Correct. Okay, and then I have the ESV to, to check you on that. That's right. <laughs> I do like the New Living Translation, but again, as we've yeah. talked about many times, it's more of a paraphrase, it is. Uh, but it's really helpful in, in paraphrasing the Scripture. So Romans 8, uh, starting in verse 16. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was, subject, was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation... Okay, let, let me just stop you there for just a second. Yeah. I mean, again, I love I love the way the New Living Translation puts those things. I'm going to read it out of the ESV too, just so that people get both translations. I'm going to start in verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so let's kind of stop right there for just a second and think about what does this mean? Several questions, what does this mean? One would be, what does the creation refer to? Mm -hmm. To what does the word creation refer? Um, now, now, again, some people that that believe that, and again, I, I, I don't want to be derogatory, but, but those that come to the text with a preconceived idea that the material creation will be annihilated from existence at the second coming of Jesus, if you come to the text with that conclusion, it's very hard to read this passage. You have to find a different way to read the word creation. You have to say, well, if the creation is going to be annihilated from existence, then creation can't mean creation. It has to mean something else. And so there's sort of some hermeneutical gymnastics that get played sometimes. And so the word creation there, that, that Greek word could refer to anything that is created. Sure. So we could say, okay, well, what else created things could this be referring to anything in reality's makeup basically can fall into that absolutely yeah. so we could be talking about spiritual beings well okay what, what do you well let, let, let's even start with humanity mm -hmm. we could be talking about humans well humans humans that are as the text says humans that are the creation is is um, let's see it's waiting. The creation waits. This is verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, so if creation there is talking about humans, what well, can't be the sons of God, and he's already said the sons of God are us, the people that have the spirit, so Christians. So if Christians are the sons of God, the children of God, then if the creation refers to other humans, then that's saying that non-Christians, because that would be the only people that are left, people that don't belong to God, people that aren't God's children, that they're waiting 
eagerly for the for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, why would people who are not God's people, people who do not have the Spirit of Christ, people who are do not belong to God, who are not God's children, why would they be waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God? That would be a completely unconscious, eagerly waiting. Uh, absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this subconscious eagerly waiting right. because they actually want to be punished by the judgment of God. Right. Um, or I guess somebody could take that to mean like a universalism that all people will be saved whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would reject that. In fact, I think the whole book of Romans would I reject that say, idea. That, right from that, the very beginning of Romans. Right, exactly. That, that we're saved by, by our faith in Jesus, by our trusting in Jesus, and by being united with him. So I, I utterly reject the idea that the creation refers to human beings, because if it refers to human beings, it's differentiated from from children of God, human beings, and it must mean non-children of God, human beings. So the creation probably, I, I would say definitely, doesn't refer to humans. Somebody else might say, well, maybe it means spiritual creation, like the the spiritual forces, like angels. Okay, wait a second. So if this creation is referring to angels, what angels is that talking about? What well, can't be fallen angels, right. because fallen angels aren't longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And it can't be angels who haven't fallen, because these this creation is subjected to futility. This creation is cursed, and unfallen angels are not cursed. They're not subjected to futility. So it can't be talking about unfallen angels, and it can't be talking about fallen angels. So I don't know what spiritual beings this would be referring to. The only thing left is the material creation. The only right. thing left is the earth, is is all of this. And and again, there's this idea. I'm, I'm going to speak specifically to people from, from our fellowship, uh, from Churches of Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what the eschatology is in other groups. But amongst members of Churches of Christ, there's this this very strong pushback right now against this idea that the the creation, the earth, will be redeemed, that that the the earth has a, a future hope. <laughs> and again, it's very hard to read this text and reject that idea. Mm-hmm. If you reject that idea, you have to find another way to interpret what Paul is saying here. And again, I don't know any other way to read that that word creation. If it's not humans and it's not angels, it has to be the earth. It has to be this created planet. I was reading some commentaries. Uh, this is a, a commentary by uh, Jimmy Allen uh, from Harding, uh, 1970s. He wrote this. Um, and, and again, <laughs> again, it's exactly, it's exactly what we're saying. He's, he's interpreting and, and saying what is, what is the creation, and he walks through why it can't be the spiritual creation, why it can't be the human creation, why it must be the material creation. And he quotes Lipscomb, Moses Lard, McGarvey, Robertson, Linsky, Sanday, Bloomfield, Thayer, Hodge, on and on and on. The people who affirm that this is the material creation. He says about verse 21, again, this is Jimmy Allen's commentary on Romans. He says, because of Adam's sin, the earth was placed under a curse. Genesis 3.17. These expressions refer to that curse. This present system was subjected to death and decay by God, but it has it has hope of something better. He says about verse 22, in these verses, the creation is personified. 
Personification is a figure of speech by which inanimate beings are spoken of as animated or endowed with life and volition. The creation is groaning because it has been subjected to futility and decay from which it longs to be released. He says, the point of all of this is that when man fell, the earth was cursed. When man is glorified, the earth will also be glorified. And there he quotes from Moses Lard, uh, his commentary on Romans. So, so this, this idea that the earth will be redeemed, that the material earth will be redeemed when Jesus comes, not only is it specifically stated in Paul in Romans 8, by Paul in Romans 8, but it has been affirmed by preachers in our brotherhood for a very long time. David Lipscomb in his commentary on Romans. Again, I, I realize these, these men's opinion doesn't prove anything, but it, it just goes to show this isn't some new idea. Right. There's this accusation I hear all the time that these these young preachers they're coming up with this new idea about new heavens, new earth, and the redeemed creation as if as if this is just just fell fell out of the sky. This has been in scripture from the beginning, and and theologians and preachers have have always held this position. Not all preachers, not all theologians, but there have been preachers and theologians and writers that have always held this position. Um, again, this is uh, David Lipscomb's commentary, um, probably the beginning of the 1900s when, he, when this was written uh, on Romans chapter 8. He said, the creation here means the world, embracing all animated nature below man. The sin of man brought a curse upon the earth and mortality and death came upon all creatures and they are represented they are represented as earnestly waiting for the appearance of the sons of God from the grave when the world will be delivered from the curse under which it labors on account of the sins of man its ruler Paul personifies the world just as the prophets do when they make the floods and trees clap their hands Psalm 98 and verse 8 Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 12 it is one of the frequent figures of speech thus to make nature sympathize with man. So again, Lipscomb, Lard, uh, Jimmy Allen, all of these all of these preachers would agree that this is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the earth groaning in its present state, but not just groaning in its present state, that its future state is one for which it hopes. Uh, so let's let's keep reading because there we've read through verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Um, in fact, let's stop there for a second. I was reading from, I think it's the complete Jewish Bible, mm-hmm. and it it interpreted the word futility with the Hebrew word, and again, this is this is Greek, and so but they're kind of borrowing a, a Jewish word, a Hebrew word, to translate the word futility, and the word they chose there is hevel which is the word that Ecclesiastes uses to talk about vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. And so what they're saying is that that everything is decaying, it's broken, it's frustrated, it, it, it has a futility to it. If you build something, eventually it's going to come down. What goes up must come down. Right. If you build something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to decay. Everything that we do is is smoke and mirrors. It's all, it, there's a futility to all of this. But Paul says here that, that that's part of the curse that was placed upon creation at the fall. And, 
It was placed upon creation because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation, this is verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul says that there is a hope to what the creation is experiencing, that this death and decay and futility and curse will not last forever, that that the creation itself, and again, I, I don't know any other way to read that than the earth, the earth will be redeemed from its current state of futility and decay. And again, what does that mean? Well, it means everything that we see around us, everything is decaying, everything is decaying. And and we look around at the earth and we think there's so much, there's so much good. There's so much beauty. Look at the Grand Canyon. We look at the mountains. We look at the oceans and we think this is so beautiful. But at the same time, there's also tragedy and suffering and pain and decay and death. And everywhere we look, there's death and decay. And Paul says that when Jesus comes, not only will we experience redemption and our mortal bodies will be redeemed, but also the creation itself will experience the same redemption. So if our bodies will be resurrected and transformed, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says, then apparently, according to Paul, the the earth itself, the creation itself will be resurrected and transformed, that there will be a transformation under which the world will go. and, And this is what creation is longing for and hoping for and groaning for. So... Two, two thoughts. One we talked about beforehand that I think the one of the issues that I think is inherently wrong with thinking we're going to go off into this spiritual existence mm-hmm. and the earth is going to cease and creation is going to cease to exist. It's all going to be burned up. One of the problems I think with that is that's not how we started. Mm. That's not where things went, you know. We didn't come out of that mm-hmm. into sin. We mm-hmm. came out of paradise on earth and in creation mm-hmm. into sin. Yeah. And that's the second thing is, is I think as we've been talking about this, one thing that keeps popping up in my mind is since we know that sin is the reason for the futility, for mm-hmm. the hevel, for the frustrations that we have living in, in creation today, mm-hmm. If you're if you're saying God is it has to just burn it all up and have it cease to exist, mm-hmm. He's done with matter. Mm-hmm. Are you saying? I, mean, I know this isn't what people are meaning to say, but it, that that worldview tends towards sin being more powerful than God. Sin has right. corrupted things beyond the point of God's redemption. Right. And yet, the whole point of Scripture. The whole point of Jesus, the new Adam, mm-hmm. I love, you know, I was thinking about that as we were talking about this, that that was the point of Jesus is for a man mm-hmm. to be the first new creation to get it and get it right. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, he obtains this resurrected body, mm-hmm. which I think, again, probably fast forwarding where we're, where we're going to some extent, but um with the, which is a picture of what we can look forward to mm-hmm. that where death will be conquered the yes. decay and sin will be conquered yes. and yeah there will have to be a reckoning and there will mm-hmm. have to be um, a raising and renewal that's right but yeah. the renewal is coming mm-hmm. and 
we get that picture in the garden. Mm -hmm. We get that picture of what I think it's supposed to be like. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you said the word raising. I, I don't know if you meant raising with a S or raising with a Z. I meant it with a Z. Okay, but, but both. both. Yes, yeah. they're both a raising as in a resurrection, but raising as in a, a burning to the ground. That's right. You know, it's funny. You were talking about how the story of we're, we're created, the garden, the paradise, and then sin brings brokenness and death and decay if the story ends with, well, that didn't work out, let's just burn it all to the ground and annihilate it from existence. It reminded me of something I saw on my next door neighbor app. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, my next door neighbor app is filled with my neighbors talking about the bobcats and coyotes and spiders that are in our neighborhood. And there's these big spiders that have sort of moved into our neighborhood. We had one at our house not too long ago. And this lady posted a picture of it and said, well, I just burned down my house and I'm looking for a new one because he, <laughs> she had the spider. Well, Let's say somebody did that. Let's say that a snake moved into their house or a spider moved in their house or a rodent moved into their house and they just decided instead of eradicating the pest, I'm just going to burn it all to the ground and go find a different house. Right. Then then you have to conclude the rat one, the spider one, the snake one. The snake one if if the snake made you burn down your house and go find a different one. But if you were able somehow to eradicate the pest from your home mm -hmm. and and be able to live in your home without that pest, then you can say that you were victorious over the snake, over the spider, over the rat. That's what the Bible is. The Bible isn't Satan wins by forcing God to destroy everything he created. To destroy his good creation. Exactly. The yeah. story begins by saying it was good. Mm -hmm. Everything was good. And then because of sin, then death and decay entered the world. But Paul says, again, this isn't, we're not making this up. We'll talk about second Peter three. Cause I know people are like, wait, what about second Peter three? We'll get there. But the text says that creation is longing. I want to, I want to keep reading. Mm -hmm. I know we need to take a break, but verse uh, 22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, the pains of childbirth. Mm -hmm. Many theologians have pointed out that it's not the pains of death. It's the pain of childbirth. Those are two different kinds of pain. These aren't, these aren't death pains. These aren't creation is, is dying and it's destined to be dead. It's like a mother that is giving birth to something good. It's painful. Yes. There's groaning. Yes. There's suffering. Yes. And the suffering isn't going to last forever. The pain and frustration isn't going to last forever. There's hope attached to this suffering. There's hope attached to this pain and this groaning that... Again, yes, Paul is being figurative here, but he is personifying the creation and saying that the creation, right now what it's experiencing, the, the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and the floods and the death and the destruction and the decay, all of it is leading to, to the day when Jesus will come and the earth and all creation will experience the same sort of redemption that our mortal bodies will experience. He says... And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, in this hope, this specific hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, all of this is about hope. It's about having this mental image of what is coming. 
We don't know all the details. I don't know what the new earth is going to be like, but I know that we're waiting for a redemption of this creation. I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com slash audible. That's radicallychristian.com slash audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com slash audible. Now back to the Bible study. I want to pick back up with what... David Lipscomb writes in his commentary on Romans, this is chapter 8 and verse 22, he says that the whole creation suffered from the effects of man's sin. It is represented as suffering and groaning in its mortality and together travailing in pain. Animated nature suffers, vegetable nature struggles against, but succumbs to death and decay, and the laws of all nature are disturbed and in commotion on account of man's sin. And again, that's the picture that we get in in the fall. That's the picture that we get throughout Scripture, is that this earth is a character in the, the narrative of Scripture. This earth is a character in God's redemption plan. And, and from the very beginning, the earth is part of what, what fell. The, the earth is part of what was subjected to the curse because of man's fall, because of man's sin— all creation was subjected to this futility, as Paul says. And then Lipscomb says, These pangs of a world in travail cannot be unmeaning. They point to a coming time of delivery when, according to his promise, and here he's quoting from Second Peter 3, According to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So, Paul is agreeing with Peter that we are waiting for something better. And the something better that we're waiting for is not to float away to some ethereal place in the sky. In fact, the way that all of the New Testament talks about the second coming is that something from the sky, someone from the sky, is bringing something from the sky to us. That Jesus is going to come, Jesus is going to appear Always in scripture, we, we read about Jesus coming, Jesus appearing. The Hebrew writer talks about the city that is coming. Just thinking about the city of God right. coming down. Revelation. Yeah. That's exactly what John envisions is the city of God coming. Some people might say, well, wait, didn't Paul write to the, the church at Thessalonica and say that we're going to be caught up with Jesus together in the sky? Yes. Actually, the word there that talks about meeting the Lord is a, is a word that was typically associated with welcoming a dignitary to your town. And so when a king or some important person would come to town, the way Jesus came in the triumphal entry, you you would it would be rude to let him just come in through the gates by himself. You finish he, the last leg of his journey with him. Exactly. So you go like out that. to meet him yeah. outside of the city with the expectation that you're going to bring him, escort him into the city. Now, Paul doesn't say that in, in to the, the Thessalonica church, but here, throughout Paul's writings, we see that Jesus is coming. And again, the Hebrew writer pictures the city of God that's coming. John pictures Jesus bringing the city of God as if it's the bride of the Lamb. And so throughout Scripture, we see that Heaven is holding, currently, heaven is holding all of our promises and blessings and inheritance. And on the second, at the second coming, 
Jesus is going to bring all of those blessings, all of that inheritance. And then the earth itself, again, Paul is saying the earth itself is going to experience a transformation, a redemption. So many people like, oh, I don't know. I I wouldn't want to live here forever. I can't imagine living here on this earth forever. I can't believe people want to live here on this earth forever. Wait, nobody said it's going to be this earth. I mean, I think it is going to be this earth, but it's not going to be the way that it is right now. That's Paul's whole point. Right now, it's bad. I mean, it's good, but it's also bad. That's the paradox of it. Because of sin, everything everything is slightly off. Everything in our in our personal relationships, in our in our bodies, mm-hmm. with the earth itself, it hurts. There's pain associated with everything. With everything, even the best things, there is pain associated with it. And and Paul says that all of this pain is actually a hopeful pain. It's a pain that's hoping for, longing for, groaning for, anticipating something better. Well, I think you brought, I'm glad you brought that up again, going back to the verse in Romans 8, where he's talking about the pains of childbirth. Mm-hmm. That's what we're experiencing in this reality right now. I think that's such a, a powerful metaphor, a powerful idea to, because I think, I think sometimes, obviously it's hard when you're suffering mm-hmm. and when it's, when, when you're in pain, it's hard to think what's the purpose of this. It's like when you're really in pain, I don't know the pains of childbirth, right. but some types of pain I know. And it's, it, it that is your reality. Mm-hmm. Pain is your reality. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of looking forward to mm-hmm. something you, you don't, it's like you don't even have that capability in some mm-hmm. sense. So it's, it's hard for us to step out. And, and I think this is what causes so many people to ask the question, you know, if, well, if there's a God for the atheist mm-hmm. or the agnostic, why would he allow all this? Why would he allow all this pain? Yes. And I think what, you know, what Paul is maybe in some sense unintentionally doing by, by talking about this in the context of the new creation that's coming is saying, no, you, there is a purpose. We may not always understand it. Mm-hmm. We may not always have the eyes to see it because mm-hmm. we're, we are in the suffering. We are mm-hmm. in the midst of the pain, but that it is producing something. Mm-hmm. And it, and God has a purpose with, as he put it, the curse that put the creation under futility. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I, like you said, that, that hope that we get to live with because we're looking forward to something specific, mm-hmm. not something unimaginable, mm-hmm. not some, you know, I've heard people, even Christians describe our, you know, our, the resurrection is like, well, our spirit returns to God and becomes part of God's, you know, God, it becomes part of God again. It's mm. like, so you lose all identity mm. and it's like, yeah. wh- wh- where are you That's getting not, that? Right. That's, yeah. we, there's not a single place that I yeah. can, I can think of where we get that. Yeah. And, th- and there is, there is, a, there is that in between time between the time of our death and the right. time of our resurrection, where our spirit does is disembodied. Right. But the way Paul puts it in second Corinthians is that that's, that's like a naked spirit. It's an unclothed. He, he uses the phrase unclothed. And that's not our desire to be unclothed. Our desire is to be further clothed. Mm-hmm. And I like that phrase further clothed. It's, it's almost like he, he describes it as our bodies right now are like a tent and a tent is just a temporary dwelling place. But when Jesus comes and we experience that transformation, it's not that we'll be less physical. It's not that our spirits will be less clothed. Our spirits will actually be 
further clothed, more clothed than they are now. Hmm. And if the creation, Romans 8, is going to experience the same sort of transformation, then the the future creation, the future world, will be even more permanent than this world that is full of decay. Everything from the sun to the moon to the ground that we're standing on, everything is experiencing decay. Everything is breaking down. Everything is breaking down. Either it's getting sick. I mean, we even know that like every atom has a has a half-life. Everything is breaking down. Everything is breaking down. But the the transformation that God will bring about, that Jesus will bring about, will make it so that the creation is no longer decaying. What's that going to be like? What's what's a future world going to be like where trees don't decay anymore? Where dirt and soil don't decay, where everything is perfect, where all of the death and futility and and frustration and decay is taken away. I don't know. But you, you said a minute ago that it is a specific hope. We don't have all the details, but we have some of the details. And I get frustrated with Christians who say things like, well, we just don't know. Like, we don't know what it's going to happen. So, so why talk about it? Why worry about it? Well, because that's what hope is. Hope is this future reality that you haven't seen yet. Paul says that. You haven't seen this future hope, but you've got some of the details. And you have to take those details that you do have and hold them very close. I was thinking about trying to, how do we come up with a metaphor about that? I was thinking about if a parent takes their kids on vacation to someplace they've never been before. Let's say the kids have never been to Disney World, never even seen pictures of Disney World, and said, hey kids, I'm going to take you to Disney World. Now, they, they know something about what that's going to be like, but what if they get in the car and they start driving towards Florida, and one of the kids says, well, we really don't know where we're going, we just know it's vacation. And another kid says, yeah, yeah, that's true. We, we really don't know anything about it. So it's best not to get our hopes up. Let's not, let's not even picture anything. And somebody else says, well, we could just be going to the desert. I don't know. We, we might just be going to the desert and we're just going to hang out in the desert for a week. Well, wait a second. Now what you're anticipating and expecting is much different than what you were specifically told. So this idea that, well, we just don't know. So let's not picture anything. Well, okay maybe I appreciate your humility there, but if you're going to take that idea so far that you end up contradicting the things that we've specifically been told, that's problematic. We are told that the creation will be redeemed. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I know that we're going to inherit a redeemed creation. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. So I, I don't know what that earth that we inherit is going to be like, but I know we will inherit an earth and if anybody says, no, there's not going to be any earth to inherit, then they're contradicting Jesus. They're contradicting Paul. I want to, we keep kind of dancing around 2 Peter 3. So I want to read 2 Peter 3. I'm curious to hear how the New Living Translation puts it, because this is the text that people always go to, to say, see, the whole material creation is going to be annihilated from existence. It's ironic that, that that's the conclusion people take from this, because this passage, verse 13, ends with Peter saying, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, what is the new earth we're waiting for? Again, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but I know it's going to be an earth. It's going to be an earth. And according to Paul in Romans 8, it's going to be a redeemed version of this earth, of this creation. So 
whatever Peter says here, we have to keep in mind that it ends with him saying, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And and really to your earlier point about how there are so many skeptics and, mm-hmm. and cynics who say, well, you know, if there's if there's really a God who's loving and kind and benevolent, then why is there all of this suffering and pain? Why hasn't he done away with that? And we might even think as Christians, if Jesus reigns, like specifically Jesus reigns as king now, we're proclaiming this good news that now Jesus has taken over the world, why why are all of the bad things continuing to happen? And that's exactly what Peter is talking about. So if you don't mind, um, let's start in Second Peter 3 and verse 1. Verse 1. This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. For before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Okay, let's stop right there for just a second. Read verse 6 for me one more time. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Okay, so he used the water to destroy the ancient world. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Here's how the ESV reads verse 6. And that by means of these, the waters, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter says, it's really important to understand the picture that he's painting here. He's saying these scoffers are going to come and they're going to say, where's this Jesus you've been talking about? Why hasn't he come? Why hasn't he fixed everything? And and I want you to understand that the scoffers who say that everything is continuing just like it was since the very beginning, since creation, they're wrong. It it. It hasn't been this way since creation. He he says there was a previous earth, <laughs> a, in an earth 1.0. There was the first earth, and that first earth was destroyed by water. Now, does he mean, when he says destroyed, yours says the ancient world, the ancient world was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Mine says the, it, it was deluged with water, deluged with water, and perished. Now, when the earth perished or the earth was destroyed, the earth before the flood, the pre-Diluvian world, the pre-flood world, when it perished or was destroyed, does that mean it was annihilated from existence? No. It's still this earth. It's still this planet. It, but, but it was very much reshaped. It, it was yeah. reshaped, absolutely, in, in, in every sense of the word, particularly human civilization. Right. Whatever civilization existed prior to the flood, mm-hmm. whatever they were doing, whatever they were building, whatever they were making, whatever they were creating— all of it was gone. It was all gone. And so if if New York, if the United States, let's say that, if the United States was wiped off the face of the planet right now, we, we would feel like the, that was the end of the world, right? That was the end of the world. Well, in a way, it would be, would be the end of our world. Even if there were still other people on the other side of the planet, I mean, it would be a totally different world. 
especially if all human civilization in the world was destroyed except for one family, that's the end of the world. And so that previous world was destroyed. That previous world perished. He does not say and does not mean that the earth was annihilated from existence and God created a new planet, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He doesn't, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the pre-Diluvian world was destroyed and perished with water. And he says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, this is verse seven, are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So he says this, this current earth that now exists, earth 2.0, mm-hmm. the post-Diluvian world, the post-flood world, this world is being stored up for fire. Now, does he say that it will be annihilated from existence? Well, he says that the ungodly will be destroyed. He says that there's going to be a fire that sweeps across this world and it's going to destroy the ungodly. But so far, he hasn't said that it's going to be annihilated from existence. Let's keep reading verse 8. Verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Hmm. Since That's an interesting way that that, that I, says the I, earth I, and everything on it will deserve judgment. Yeah, the word there in verse 10 in the ESV is exposed that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's actually a textual variant here, which means that different manuscripts that we have, ancient manuscripts, say different things. They have different Greek words. So it isn't just it isn't just that some of our English translations translate it differently. It's that there's actually somebody made a mistake. And we don't know for sure what the original manuscript said. And sometimes that happens. It's very that's uh, very rare, but sometimes that happens. The best manuscripts say exposed. Some of the other manuscripts say destroyed. Now, if he means destroyed, well, he probably means it a lot like the pre-flood world was destroyed. But if he means it, if he means exposed, well, that's a different word and that's a different idea. And and like you said, it it deserves judgment. It's like it's like the earth will be laid bare. The earth will be made naked before the Lord, before the judgment of God. And and specifically when it talks about what will be destroyed and what will be dissolved and what will melt away, the ESV says the heavens will pass away with a roar. That is the sky. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. It's this picture that the curtain that exists between the earth and God, which is the sky, the heavens, the heavenly bodies. It's like a curtain that separates the heavenly realm from the earthly realm. And he pictures that curtain being destroyed, that curtain being dissolved. Everything that exists between us and God that kind of makes us feel like, God can't see me, I can do whatever I want. And all of these bad people running around doing their bad things, thinking that God can't see them. When Jesus comes, the skies will be dissolved, the heavenly bodies will be dissolved, and the earth will be exposed to the judgment of God. It's like God will strip the earth naked so that his judgment is fully on the earth, and then all of the ungodly will be destroyed with fire. 
obviously very graphic language. But again, nothing we've read so far has said the all material creation will cease to exist. Nothing says that. It's not even what he's talking about. He's talking about judgment of the ungodly people and how the earth itself will be exposed to the judgment of God. It's less like all creation and it reads more like the dead wood will cease to exist. Mm, that's a good way we'll to put it. Yeah. Off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that's everything that's dead and dying and decaying, everything that's sinful and broken and wrong will all be gone. And when we put this together with what Paul says in Romans 8, it's perfect. Because this right. is the redemption of the creation. This is how the creation will be redeemed, is all of the ungodly will be destroyed. It says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so again, Peter's point here is very similar to Paul's point in Romans 8. It's all about how are we living in the present. And how we live in the present is shaped by what we expect the future holds. Mm -hmm. And if we expect the future holds the judgment of the ungodly and the inheritance that the, the godly, the inheritance that God's people will enjoy, the redemption of creation, the new heavens and the new earth, this is what we will receive. This is what we will enjoy. We will be glorified with Christ. We will be co-heirs with him. This is all the language of scripture, but it's language we, we are so dismissive of. And when we talk about our future hope, we just talk about floating away to some ethereal place in the sky. This is not what Peter's describing. He's describing the inheritance of a new heavens and a new earth. Is it going to be like this one? Well, is, is our future body going to be like this one? There's going to be, I think, some continuity between this body and the next body, between this earth and the next earth. But there's also going to be discontinuity between this one and the next one. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be new. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to be changed. What's that going to be like? Good. Good. That's that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be perfect. But so if, if somebody wants to say, well, maybe God's going to make a brand new earth out of nothing. Okay, maybe. The text doesn't say that, but okay, maybe that's what will happen. I'm I'm better with that than I am the idea that there will be no earth. The idea that there will be no earth or no bodies or no physicality, no material creation, that is antithetical to our hope. And again, it's like kids going on vacation with their parents. You don't have to know exactly what you're expecting, but you do have to take the details that you have been given into consideration and have those details, however sparse they may be, shape your hope and expectation. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Polly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.